the shortest podcast introduction that you've ever heard. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is your boy, C-I-Z-Z-Y, live action, Kansas City, Missouri. And we back at it again with another episode of the College Stutzer Show. And like I tell you guys, every single week, I'm coming back with a fire guest. I've yet to do it again. I've yet to do it again. I mean, consistency is just the name of the game, and I guess I am the name of this game. So here we are, back at it again with another dope guest, and we're going to go ahead and let him introduce himself. Go ahead and say what's up to the people, my guy. Hey, appreciate you having me on, bro. Charlie Lowe, uh, partner at Crossroads Real Estate Group here in Kansas City, commercial real estate firm. We handle uh, brokerage on the real estate development side for assets ranging from you know small boutique retail shops all the way up to large industrial, 100 plus thousand square foot developments, uh, multifamily, uh, entertainment. We kind of do everything. Uh, we work on projects from 18th and Vine redevelopment, Truce Corridor, all the way out south to Prairie Fire. And we're just working on a new listing all the way out at 159th Street, uh, Blue Hawk Development, largest mixed use development that's currently in the works in the state of Kansas. So we're kind of all over that. the place. I love that. So as y'all heard and as we just heard, there's a lot of big shit going on. But before the big shit, you was six years old. You was seven years old. You was eight years old. So let's talk about let's talk about childhood, man. Where'd you grow up? What were some of your, you know, early interests, early hobbies? Let's start from start from the young Charlie. Yeah, yeah. So I uh actually grew up in Maryville, Missouri, small town, rural Missouri, northwest Missouri states up there. Uh it was interesting. Um, family worked at the uh, college there in Northwest Missouri State. My mom taught up there. Grandparents worked up there as well. Uh, you know, being mixed race in a small rural town of Missouri is an interesting experience in and of itself. Uh, made a lot of great friends that I'm friends with to this day. Uh, thankful for that. Uh, you know, always was about sports, athletics, uh, football when I was talking about six, seven, eight years old. I was certain that I was going to be in the NFL, all that stuff. Uh, realized real quick by the time I got to high school, showed up freshman year at like 120 pounds, five foot six. Maybe the NFL thing wasn't going to be uh, be the vibe. But, uh, you know, ended up growing in a little bit. Uh, got up to a whole whopping 5'8", five 5'9", five by my senior year. But got up to about 170. Ended up being fortunate enough to go on and play football at Northwest Missouri State. But – you know, growing up, my interests were always just meeting new people, traveling with my family, um, really trying to, I guess, escape or get out of that little Maryville bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, my aunts and uncles lived in Kansas City when I was growing up. So family trips would always be coming down to KC, doing the touristy stuff, going <laughs> to the plaza, going to Crown Center, uh, all like the little kid touristy things you could imagine mm -hmm. science city kaleidoscope yeah it was kaleidoscope only I kaleidoscope mean, man i was growing up science city wasn't a thing yet. it wasn't even popping yet no like union station was closed oh damn yeah so i'm showing my age a little bit but that's what was going on back then so i love it yeah i love it and so Maryville, missouri so where are your are your parents originally from Maryville as well because you mentioned that they work at the university which explains why you were there but yeah. how did they end up there and what did they teach at the university how was that experience having like professors you know as parents or having teachers or workers yeah. at the school yeah so 
parents got divorced when I was like three years old. So I was actually grew up. I actually grew up in grew up. I was raised for the first three years of my life in Orlando. Mom and dad lived in Orlando. Parents got divorced. Grandparents were already in Maryville. So my mom took me up to Maryville, uh, raised me there. My mom actually taught uh, communications and negotiations there. Uh, so obviously a <laughs> lot. Helped. Yeah, a, a lot translated directly into what I do for a living. Oh, yeah. Uh, growing up kind of on campus was pretty dope as well because, as you know, you know, university setting, doesn't matter where it's at, it's a very diverse group of people. You've got foreign exchange students. I was fortunate enough, I got to go to the lab school that was on campus. Nice. So my class in sixth grade, uh, it, I mean, it was crazy. My class in sixth grade in Maryville, Missouri, there were nine of us, and out of the nine people, only three of them were white. Hmm. So I had uh, two other classmates that were mixed race, black mm -hmm. and white. Then I had uh, one of my friends who was Filipino, another who was Thai, another who was Taiwanese, and another who was from Pakistan. Like, Jeez. yeah, very diverse, yeah. super, super diverse, and that's kind of how like the school is. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and so that was an incredible experience, and I'm still friends with a lot of those people to this day. Um, one of the things we laugh about is the culture shock of going from basically living in this little bubble that's not real life on campus as a kid. You go to the student union. We had our own little area in there on campus. So we're surrounded, again, by a very diverse group of people all the time, all the way up until we're 12 years old. And so we played sports that were like, with the rest of the kids from the public schools and stuff, but you don't really get what the public school is like until you get to it. So it was just bizarre because I had never, at Horse Man, I'd never experienced any form of racism because it wasn't a thing. Like none of the kids there held any kind of racist views or thought differently of anyone for how they look because every single class super diverse our teachers were all student teachers and they looked like everyone you could imagine so it was just one of those things you know people always say oh i don't see race all this stuff it's like that really was the deal growing up then seventh grade going to public school where it's like 99.9 percent .9 white it was different so that was uh a learning curve i guess and it was also one of those moments where it was kind of oh this is what Maryville was actually like. Mm. And it was just a lot different than uh, how I had grown up, kind of living on campus that whole time. And with that, like, mixed experience, I guess, how did you adjust, especially you and your friends that you were growing up with? I assume you guys all ended up going to the same high school just because it's a small town. Yep. Um, so as you guys, you know, transitioned from middle school into high school, um, you know, what are maybe some character traits or some behaviors that you had to adopt in order to quote unquote thrive in that um, environment, new environment? Yeah. Uh, so I think a couple of things. One, I have to put like an asterisk out there. Playing sports like breaks down all walls, barriers, whatever. And if you're good at sports, definitely does that. <laughs> yeah. So 
I was given a little bit of grace probably just from athletics. Uh, so I think that was kind of, I mean, truly, that was my saving grace in a lot of ways going to public school uh, because it just is what it is. You go into cliques, especially that middle school, high school age, uh, young men in particular, it's it's stupid, but people just gravitate towards other people that are good at sports. Mm -hmm. And so that was super helpful. I think the other thing, um, I was just lucky. Again, my senior, no, my freshman year, my friend Sid Brisbane, who was also mixed, we went to Horseman together, but he was four years older. And he was a senior in high school my freshman year. And so I was kind of untouchable because he knew the kids in the class beneath him were, there were a lot of kids in that class that were incredibly racist, like outwardly dropping end bombs, making slave jokes, all that stuff, just mm-hmm. wild stuff. Right. And he told me my freshman year, this is good and bad. He's like, always be yourself. Don't let anybody talk crazy to you. Always put it back on them. And if someone, if you really have a problem you can't handle yourself, just let me know. And so I took that to heart. And as a freshman, I really kind of just always stood my ground on things. I wasn't big enough to do anything, like at all. But I would talk the talk, at least, and really try and, uh, you know, show people that you're not just going to run over me and talk to me however you want. Yeah. And so from a character trait standpoint, I think it made me become uh, a stronger individual. It also, yeah, I tell people this all the time, being in real estate, especially on the commercial side, people can get into these very combative situations. You know, you negotiate. We're negotiating deals at times that there's a lot of money on the line for the landlord or the buyer or the prospective tenant or the developer, whoever it is. You know, there are times where millions of dollars are kind of hanging in the balance of getting a few deal points hammered out and figuring, figuring shit out. And with that, there are times when people will just try and push, 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 push to the point that they just expect the other party to cave because they can't handle the pressure, they can't handle the verbal attacks, all that stuff. And so I always tell people, it's like growing up in Maryville, being exposed to people saying, I mean, just a lot of wild stuff when I was in the public school setting and saying racial things and things that are deeply personal. Mm -hmm. It's like I didn't care. By the time I was a sophomore, junior in high school, there is nothing that anybody could say to me anytime, anywhere in the world that would, quote, unquote, trigger me. Like, Mm. I'd heard it all at that point. Um, You know, it just didn't matter. And so I look back on my upbringing in Maryville and dealing with those diverse experiences as truly a blessing because now I'm in a situation where, you know, I'm fortunate enough to work for myself. I have a couple of business partners that are great, but there's never a situation in business where we're, you know, even if it's an adversarial position I'm taking with somebody and we don't agree on something, there's nothing that they can say to me that's actually going to upset me, ruffle my feathers. Right, to the point where you can't, you know, do your job. Exactly. I think in a, in a podcast of yours that you did, you know, I don't, I don't know what year it was or if it was this year or a few weeks ago, who knows. But either way, a podcast I've listened to uh, with Invest, Invest Your, either way, podcast you did recently, you were talking about, um, you know, not letting emotions get the best of you and, you know, 
real estate in general. Um, and, you know, being able to, I don't know if sideline is the right word, but sideline those emotions and control them or, you know, leverage them and use them in your favor instead of letting them, you know, defeat you and, you know, be detrimental to a deal. Um, so we'll jump more into that a little bit later, but let's talk about, you know, finishing up high school. You talk about sports, you enjoyed sports, um, obviously somewhat talented because you were able to go play college ball. Um, so talk about that transition from 18 into college. You know, you're going to be staying in town. Um, did you know what you were going to study? Like, were you into school or were you like, I'm just going because of football or was it expected because your parents were, you know, what was that dynamic yeah. like? So it was expected. Like I had offers from other schools. Um, again, I was not a D1 athlete, just wasn't a thing. So it was like Missouri Central, Pitt State, um, William Jules, stuff like that all in the region. And it just came down to it. It's like, end of the day, if I'm going to play football in college, I might as well stay in Northwest. They're better than everyone else. (laughs) So that – Still are. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of the thought. But I'll tell you, uh, as far as school goes, man, my my freshman year – you know, academically, I did fine. I had over 3.0, but just barely. And I had a 3.0 with kind of doing the least. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not a really good, engaged student. Um, it was weird. It was one of those things, looking back on it, where I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't. I had a bunch of gen ed classes. Um, I didn't feel particularly challenged in anything. I wasn't good at doing the the busy work. I didn't attend class consistently for, I would say, what I consider to be like the 100 level, the easier classes. I didn't attend. I'd come take the tests. I would do well on the tests. And, you know, I was getting Bs. And I had a couple Cs in there, had a couple As. I wasn't wasn't crushing it at all. Um, It wasn't until, uh, shoot, second semester of my sophomore year, where it was like, okay, you really got to figure out what you're going to do. Like, you're almost halfway through. You still don't really know what you want to do. You're done with all your gen eds. Like, you've got to pick a direction. And so my advisor, uh, I just got really lucky. Uh, Brian Hess is the guy's name. He taught um, international business, uh, American government, um, homeland security. He taught the African world, um, a bunch of incredible classes, and he actually studied, got his, uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar, and then he studied and got another master's degree at a university in Dar es Salaam. Oh, sick. <laughs> so he owns now like a Cowabunga Safaris is his side hustle. Oh, wow. And so he has people based in Tanzania, and they do safaris throughout the continent. Not just in Tanzania. They go all the way out to Botswana, That's everywhere. Sick. That's yeah, sick. so... He said, you know, based on, like, things that you're interested in, in classes you've done well in, you know, you're a good communicator, you like to read, you're a good writer, you know, have you considered political science, and then you can kind of decide if you want to go down the attorney path, get a degree after that, or you can go, you know, political science pair with international business or international relations, and you can go, like, the embassy routes or private sector. And so that's what I ended up doing. I uh, majored in political science with a minor in international relations. 
And that's when I actually started really focusing on school. Um, you know, it was one of those things. I was in urban planning and urban politics. I was taking courses, um, you know, that really talked about the true American history, which I know there are a lot of fights about that right now, um, teaching critical race theory in schools. Uh, you know, it's wild to me because I just look at it as bad marketing. You know, the moment you put race into a word, some people are triggered by that, even if they, even if they don't know or understand what the hell they're talking about or another person is saying, the moment they you insert race into it, they're like, oh, are you, well, are you calling me racist? Or, oh, uh, well, this means that somebody's better than us. Mm -hmm. And there's just a whole conversation on that that's nuts to me. Because the true American history... Is what it is. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's no debating it. At all. Like, the country was founded by immigrants, built by slaves, and then built by more immigrants. Mm -hmm. The African slaves and Chinese immigrants legitimately built this entire country. And, you know, I don't understand why we have this back and forth or the debate or arguments about it because it's just... It is what it is. Yeah, that's that's the power of history is that it's a stated like fact. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's like this is a documented, sir. Um, <laughs> this is just what it is. This is written down in history, like carved into the history of this country and many other countries too. And so it's like, what are we arguing about? <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's kind of how I feel like about the, those topics in general. And so then it makes it challenging to have elevated conversations around those topics because I'm just tired immediately as soon as we start. I'm like, why are we arguing? We, we shouldn't even be arguing because this is just a this is just straight facts. Like it's just history. So then it's like hard to like elevate above the uh, ignorance, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. But so did you. <laughs> So you say your sophomore year, you kind of had this realization where you're like, hey, I got to like figure it out. Did you just think that because of simply you were halfway through college and you're like, I should probably figure it out? Or was there something that happened in your life or some person in your life that popped in was like, hey, get your shit together or like lock in? Or were you just at an age where you're like, I need to focus in on my future? Like, do you get what I'm trying to ask? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, Was yeah. there something that signified like that moment where you were like, all right, let me lock in? Or was that just you know, college, I, I got to lock in here and something happened later that made you like go crazy with real estate. Go ahead. Yeah. So just focus on the college, man. Let's do that. <laughs> it, it was basically like I was just messing up. Yeah. I wasn't taking school seriously. Um, my grades weren't good. Dropped below uh, 3.0. I don't remember what I dropped down to, but it was two something, which is not good, mm -hmm. especially if you're, your mom teaches on campus. Right. So, uh, <laughs> It was I was just messing up, and you know, admittedly, at the time it was for a couple of reasons. These not not excuses at all. It's poor yeah. choices, all poor choices. But I was enjoying the college experience entirely too much. That's just that simple. I was going out on the weekends, not studying as much as I should. Um, you know, thinking on some of the more difficult courses that I had gotten into that I could do the same thing that I'd always done and like high school and my freshman year of, all right, I'm going to just show up. I'll take the test. I'll do some of this other stuff, but I'm not going to go to class every day. I'm not going to do all this stuff. Like, 
it was my own hubris and ignorance as like a basically a 19 year old child thinking that I was so smart that I didn't really need to go to these classes. I could just read the stuff on the side. I didn't need to hear the lectures and I could just go in there and do it. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Um, you get into real courses. You got to be there for the lectures. There's information, presentations in those, in those lectures that it's not in the textbook. Mm-hmm. So you, when you get into those upper level classes, you start realizing that. And then you're like, ah, shit, things about to change. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Like it was get your shit together or you're going to end up flunking out of school. Right. So that's really what happened. Understandable. And so uh, let's talk about football for a little bit. 2009. Let's talk about that season. How did it feel? Uh, what was that experience like for you? Um, with all due respect, did you get playing time? I, uh, <laughs> like, I did. So it's so funny, though. I tell people all the time on this because, yeah, it was the national championship season, all that stuff. I was a freshman. So I played in three games, mm-hmm. had like two tackles. <laughs> like we're not – I'm not the reason we won any games or anything <laughs> like that. So I was just part of the team along for the ride. Uh, I'm still friends with a lot of those dudes to this day. But it was an incredible experience just to be in – on a team and in an organization that was so like effectively run and had so much talent, had dudes going to the NFL, all that stuff, it was really dope. Um, I will say, going back to just football in general, football was one of those things I always had a passion for, like playing, and I always loved the games. Uh, another one of my buddies from you know that I grew up with, he played football in Northwest as well, and we always joked in high school. Like we love, again, love the game of football, but we joked in high school of like, man, some days at practice, we're like, all right, we should quit. Like, this is too much. <laughs> doing too much. It's too hot. We don't be out here doing this stuff. Let's just go kick it. And we were joking, but only partially. And so it was one of those things where, you know, I have so much respect for student athletes at the collegiate level because it's a full-time job. Mm-hmm. You wake up. You go to weights, especially freshman year. You wake up, go to weights. First thing in the morning, weights and conditioning at, like, 5 in the morning. Then you go to class. Then you go to film at, like, 2 o'clock. Then you go to practice. And then sometimes there's another weight session in the middle of the day for the freshman. So you're doing, like, three to four things every day that are football-related. And it's a lot. And so for me personally, I'm glad that I played football. Um but at the same time, if I were to do it all over again, I don't know that I would because you really have to have like a serious, serious, serious passion and love for the game. You can't just like it. You can't just enjoy it. This has to be something that you like eat, sleep and breathe. Yeah. When you see those posts on, on Instagram, eat, sleep, breathe, it's not no, it's not fake. It's real life. Oh, <laughs> for real. Like yeah. it's it's a hundred percent and it's a lifestyle and you just People that love it, that's what they do. And, uh, yeah, I liked it. So <laughs> No, I respect that. I definitely hear you on the joking about it, but partially not joking. Definitely had some of that. Well, obviously never went to play college ball, but in high school it's like, man, we ain't going to practice tomorrow, dog. We should just quit. It's like, yeah, yeah. Next day we had practice. We did that. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> we did that a lot. You know, it's like, yep. then, you know what? Let's just go to Subway, eat some sandwiches or something. I ain't trying to go to practice. Um, last thing on that though, you know, thinking back to the football team, let's say, you know, 
all four years. You know, it doesn't have to be specifically that year. But who's one person that stands out to you as an individual that you really just admire what they've done with their life leading up to now? And I'm sure there's many, so no disrespect or anything like that to anybody else on the team. But if you just think about one person, you can be friends or maybe you're not talking all the time anymore, but somebody you admire for what they've done, you know, since then, now that you're 31. That's a tough question. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of great things. I have a couple friends who end up being, you know, football coaches here at schools in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm going to get outside of football, you know, he was my freshman year. I think he would have been a junior or a senior, dude named Abe Quad. Uh, he was actually, I mean, tell his personal story, but it, it is what it is. He was in a fire in college. Um, he had severe burns, um, just like a freak grease fire, and he got caught in it and had to jump out the window and all this stuff, didn't know he was going to play ball, came back, recovered from it, played ball, won a national championship, and he's now like a incredibly successful uh, financial advisor out in St. Louis right now. So that's somebody I look at that dude just kept moving forward, had a lot of adversity thrown in front of him, and uh, now he's, I mean, he's killing it. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing. Um, so I kind of want to jump into, you know, post-college. So let's let's talk about where real estate became a thing because we actually haven't talked about where that even got into your brain at all. Yeah. And we're already, you know, midway through college. So let's talk about when that was introduced to you and when you were like, oh, this might be something I'm really going to consider doing. Yeah, it was introduced to me my, my senior year of college. Had a I graduated in December of 2012. Um, I was going to get my master's degree at KU Edwards campus for their international business program in Overland Park. Program didn't start until the end of August. So I had this huge gap between December and August of like nothing. And everyone in my family was like, you got to go get an internship. You got to do something. And so I ended up, my uncle at the time was working at Legacy Development talked to him he said they were hiring people and they're like we're hiring interns like a bunch of them right now because the company again this is just one of those things that was pure luck great timing that year they just started up we're expanding rapidly and they needed a bunch of grunts basically interns to do all these busy tasks and went down interviewed with the founder of the company dude named dan Lowe. he's actually been in the business journal in the news quite a bit uh, lately uh, for, you know, some federal lawsuits, things like that, Um, things that have just happened in the business since I left that company. And of no relation. We have the same last name, but no relation. I was thinking about that. (laughs) Yeah, no. No relation at all. But it's funny, sidebar, his nephew, his name was, he was an intern at the company, and his name was Charlie Mayo. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so we had two interns, Charlie Mayo, Charlie Lowe. Charlie was Charlie Mayo was white, mm-hmm. obviously. Right. I am not. And uh, it was just a funny thing because everyone was confused at work because we started at the same time, and everyone's like, okay, so Charlie Lowe, but how is he – Who? wait, how is he – what's going on? What's the connection here? Yeah. <laughs> so it was just a funny thing. But um, went down, met with Dan – had an interview. Pause think, real quick. You said yeah. went down. I might have missed it earlier. I'm sorry. Went down to Kansas City. Came got down. You. Okay. Came, got you. Yeah. Okay. Came down here Caught from up. the Northwest. Uh, 
did the interview with the Classic Cup. I'll never forget. Went down, just me and him sitting there, and we're just talking about, you know, real estate. He asked some questions about my interests. I asked some questions about some of the projects he worked on, things that he does, and he just said, hey, look, if you want to work here, there's a job for the summer. You know, we'll get your paperwork set up, and you can come intern. I was like, great, this is perfect. And so I was getting 15 bucks an hour, um, and this was – this would have been in like August, like right before school started my uh, senior year. Okay, so gotcha. knew as soon as I graduated, I had something in between this master's program that I was going to get into. So graduate, come down January of 2013. I officially started at Legacy Development. They had me doing just, you know, intern stuff. Uh, data entry, literally coloring, highlighting site plans. Um all that kind of stuff for the first, I would say, month or two. Maybe it's the first few weeks. After that, they are like, hey, you can talk to people. Why don't you start calling people? Cold call some people, see if you can leave some space on some of the projects. And so that's when I started cold calling people. Again, got lucky, got a few people on the line, was able to start working on some deals. Uh, about halfway through the summer, I was able to start negotiating some leases. And at that point, Again, super fortunate. Um, my bosses were all, I mean, at the absolute top of their games. Bart Lowen, one of my mentors on the development side, he's at Price Brothers Real Estate. He does, you know, he's their executive VP of development. Uh, he was a great mentor, really talked me through economics, finance, how these performers work, how projects get built. Uh, Joanna Shaver, Andy Crimmins on the leasing side, really showed me a lot of tools on you know negotiating deals how to engage talk to people and then chuck oglesby who was on the asset management side he really showed me how to present information and how to communicate with these private equity groups you know the institutional landlords the sophisticated developers the information they wanted to see to get a deal done and so with that last name it sounds like he would have those skills right i'm just saying just saying that's a good last name it sound like sound like you know how to do all that brother just so you know if you're listening he, he, he's not listening he's <laughs> he's a little old a little old we'll take it <laughs> but nah uh so you know would have been that middle of that summer i was like you know what nah i'm not going back to school i can go back to school at some point um i understood at this point i could do this job i could lease properties I also understood the income potential in the real estate game versus the income potential if I were to be, you know, an ambassador. And first of all, you don't just become an ambassador. That takes some time. It takes some time, but it's also like that's like I would say it's the equivalent of you know getting drafted in the NBA. Yeah, there's not a lot of those positions. Uh, you got to know someone who knows someone and be the absolute pinnacle of your career and your field to get placed into something like that. And so I realized, you know, those aspirations uh, were probably a little bit unrealistic, where as with the real estate, it was tangible. I could see it. I could feel it. I could touch it, like, right then and there. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to make it work. I love it. And so – then I got lucky again. I mean, I keep saying luck. There's so much. I busted my ass, and I put in hours 
that I didn't get paid for as an intern. I worked on the weekend. I did all that stuff. But even if I would have done all of that and not had any lucky breaks, would I have gotten to where I'm at today? Probably not. Mm -hmm. So between 2013 and 2016, five of my superiors between the development and leasing side, five of them were either fired or quit. Mm -hmm. So all the development folks left. Two of the leasing people that were above me, senior level leasing people, fired and left. And so I went from like assisting on a lot of these projects to, I think I was like 25, 26. I became a senior leasing manager. And so I was working on the Legends Outlets. I did the Ward Parkway Center from really 2014 on the Ward Parkway Center. I handled all the leasing on my own on that one. I had a superior that assisted but wasn't really actively engaged on it. Um, Liberty Commons up north in Liberty. I did a project in Brentwood, California, 500,000 square foot lifestyle center, and then a project in Daytona, Florida as well. So at 26, I was traveling. And a lot. And, at, and out of nowhere. Yeah. Kind of. No, it definitely was. It was yeah. out of nowhere. I mean, it went, again, from being like a chump intern to senior lease manager in like three years. And so I would not have been able to do that without having the mentors that I had, though. Because I tell people all the time, in my first three years, yeah, I didn't end up getting a master's degree like on paper, but I got a master's degree in real estate development and brokerage in my first two years there. Because it's trial by fire, you know, you learn things on the job, you learn tricks of the trade, but then just being exposed to all of these different deals, being in all of the meetings, understanding how things get done i mean an invaluable experience and so let's let's kind of pretend that we are creating a audiobook for dummies right yeah and i would love for you to break down your role uh roles during that time period and your role right now for dummies like what like imagine nobody listening right now is no shit about real estate that's fair and because there's a good chance that 50% of them don't because yep. it's not a niche audience in real estate. So break it down for dummies. Like when you're working on these projects in Liberty, the legend, uh, current, I mean, we'll get to it later, but 18th and Vine, um, you know, in the past Brentwood, like when you're working on these developments and leasing and conversations and negotiation, like just for dummies, do your best to break it down. Yeah, yeah. So... It's different on all of those. Right. That's what I was assuming. So, <laughs> so I'll start with the Ward Parkway Center. Let's do it. When I was at Legacy Development, I worked as a leasing manager for a developer. I was not acting as a third-party broker. So these are projects that we managed and operated, and I was part of that team. So in that position, as the leasing manager, I was still essentially a salesperson, a broker, my job was to work with a development team on creating a plan that worked and a tenant mix that worked. So this is the easiest example just because I think a lot of people know Ward Parkway Center. Course, and yeah. That restaurant village on the south end, mm -hmm. that was really kind of my first solo project, I would say. It was me and my buddy to this day, uh, Alex Thompson, and my friend to this day, uh, Stephanie Collins. We're all young. And we were the leasing manager, construction, 
contact and the finance and development contact. And so the three of us basically deals, sorry, I'm gonna slow down a little bit. I talked to the founder, Dan, and uh, Chuck Oglesby about what are the options to do in the South End? What, what can we make work? And you know, the original conversation was we're gonna move Dick Sporting Goods that was there where Ross is today. We're gonna move them to that South End where Dillard's used to be in the restaurant villages today build them a brand new 50,000 square foot building and then do one restaurant. So there is public, there are public incentives on that project, the CID, City Improvement District. Mm -hmm. So developers use those funds that are based off sales tax generation to help build the project, help yeah. finance the project. And so, you know, a 50,000 square foot Dick's Sporting Goods, their sales volume was just fine, was whatever. But the restaurant, just one restaurant, you know, that sale, a 7,000-square-foot restaurant could do close to the same amount of volume as a Dick Sporting Goods was projecting at that time. And so trying to figure it out, I was like, okay, does this really make sense? You've got a restaurant that's probably going to do $500, plus and $500 a square foot in sales versus a retailer that's probably going to do 200 to 250 a square foot. Not great. So what about doing more restaurants? Mm -hmm. And so my job as a leasing manager is doing the due diligence, understanding the market, understanding you know what the voids are in the market, and then seeing what makes the most sense to put here. And so through the due diligence process of that phase two development, realized that within a one mile radius of the Ward Parkway Center, there was one sit down restaurant. Hmm. And that was the Red Snapper. That was it. <laughs> Within that same one mile radius, there were 11,000 employees between, yeah, Burns and Mac, Black and Beach, all of those office buildings, those corporate office buildings right there. Within one mile, you've got over 10,000 people and they're all trying to go somewhere to eat. And also, you know, I've got the sales volume of what Chick-fil-A, I know what they're doing in sales. It's like the number one Chick-fil-A in the entire region. Quick pause. How do you get that information? Can't share that. Okay. Keep going. Uh, <laughs> You can find it through relationships. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's the number one Chick-fil-A. That five guys, they absolutely crush it. Firehouse subs, all of those guys are killing it. So it's like, why don't we just do all restaurants? We have a sea of parking. We could do like a restaurant village. And that's when we started really putting pen to paper. The developers, Chuck, worked with... Stephanie and Alex on the construction and finance side figuring out, okay, can this make sense? I worked with them on the leasing side of, hey, this is what I can get as far as rent goes mm -hmm. on a per square foot basis. Can this make sense? And we all came to the conclusion, yeah, this actually makes a lot of sense and we're going to make more money on the project and we're actually going to put something out there that people in the community are going to enjoy a lot more than just a dick sporting goods with one like afterthought restaurant. I love that. I love that because while you're talking about that, and I think that's the benefit of like why a lot of people work in real estate because of how many people you can help in the process. Like what I think about there is I'm like, okay, nobody's really, th in case you're in real estate, but general population is not thinking about any, any of y'all <laughs> behind oh, no. the door. You know what I'm saying? They're like, no disrespect, but they're thinking about, 
oh, that's a cool building that's getting put up. Or that's, oh, they're redoing this space over here. So they might think about it there. And then it's like the restaurant comes. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to go to that restaurant. But now, so now the consumers is all happy. They about to go to this new restaurant. Then there's like managers that get pulled in that are about to have, you know, get this new opportunity working at this new location. And then there's the owners of, you know, the regional owners of Applebee's or some shit that's like happy about this new location that's going. There's just so many people that are benefiting and or are a part of the process. Um, and I just find find that interesting and that be, just being a cool thing about real estate in general, especially when you get up to like the commercial level and on up. So many people are being affected by positively or negatively, depending on the situation. But so many people are being affected by decisions being made like that you just discussed. So I just think that's kind of cool. No, I appreciate it. Most stuff. It's, it's definitely like I would say one of the, my favorite parts about the business because, again, you know, growing up in academia and then going to Northwest, studying, like, political science, mm-hmm. we studied so much of this growing up, and, you know, gentrification was always a big topic. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but it's, it's one of those things where development today, I think, is viewed by a lot of people as, like, a curse word, mm-hmm. like it's a bad thing, mm-hmm. um, and it can be. It absolutely can be. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that all development is good and all developers are good because that's a lie. Like, right. There are a lot of developers that are not good. There are a lot of developers that are great. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot. That's a strong word. There are some great developers. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would say if we're being... I'm sure, there, I'm sure there's a lot. If we got you know millions of people in America, there's a good yeah, couple yeah, thousand. Yeah. That's a lot. There you go. <laughs> but I understand the sentiment in yeah. the community. Yeah. And I... I don't think, to your point, I don't think people necessarily realize the uh, financial aspect of how projects get built, mm-hmm. and they think that uh, these incentives, public incentives going to projects, whether it's apartments or retail development, whatever, I think a lot of people assume, like, well, shit, that's my money. <laughs> They're, these millionaires are taking to go make more money, and it's just all going in their pocket. And it's like, well, you know. That's a pretty, yeah pretty broad just generalization of what's going on with it and you see it on facebook every day it's like it's like a a brick falls from the top of this building hits somebody they die that's my tax dollars that fell out of that brick and it's like (laughs) yo hold up son like i feel i feel like i killed him but that's because of the yeah it's wild on the internet i feel exactly what you're saying yep but sorry continue no no i mean that was really all i was gonna say it's just i wish people understood more and I know it's one of those things that if you're not in it, it's boring. Mm-hmm. It's not interesting. Um, not going to take the time to go listen to a podcast on it. Right? Not, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. But no, nah, for real, it, it's one of those things that's incredibly impactful for communities. And the thing that I keep telling people, you know, right now, uh, KC Tennis has got a lot of juice in the, in mm-hmm. the city. Yeah. And I was a huge supporter of theirs in 2020 in particular because 2020 – Come on, like you can't just be kicking people out when you got thousands of people without work mm-hmm. and they have to be housed. Like right. they have to have a place to stay. And it doesn't human right. It's human right. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Now, where I parted ways with being like so uh aligned with them is when they started to shift from we want equal housing rights and we don't want to be kicked out of our units and I'm even with them on like bad cases of gentrification. I do not support the idea of people 
buying buildings that are occupied by, you know, people who pay their bills mm-hmm. and buying the building, kicking them out to build something brand new and increase their the lease rates, you know, twofold plus. That's not cool. Now, I also would say that's called displacement. Mm-hmm. I think there are two different things here that everyone lumps into one category. Gentrification, if you think about, I'll use this as a good example, 18th and Vine, uh, you probably saw in the a news. Recently. Yeah. yeah, there was a lot of back and forth on 18th and Vine, and there were some people saying that you know this gentrification of 18th and Vine is terrible for the district and all this stuff. And I just, you talk to people who live over there, you talk to business owners who operate their businesses over there, you talk to, uh, you know, Kiona or Mr. Kendricks at the, the mm-hmm. Negro Leagues Museum, yeah. everyone wants that district to be brought back to what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And gentrification, when you're talking about taking dilapidated buildings that don't have roofs on them, that are falling down and rebuilding it, and you're talking about building on vacant grass lots that are not used or occupied by anyone, yeah, that's a good time for gentrification. Absolutely. That's a good thing. Absolutely. You're right. going to bring jobs. You're going to bring uh, economic mobility and upward mobility for people living in those communities looking for good paying jobs, it provides additional opportunities. So, you know, that's not displacement. Would you say people like, let's just say on a, on a ground level, so not particularly organizations, but just general citizens, do you think that people have like a standoffish vibe to stuff like that happening because in other communities that they might have grown up in, maybe not specifically Kansas City, maybe when they were somewhere in Alabama before they moved here, wherever they're from, um, they've seen like a community be built up from looking, you know, empty lots, dilapidated buildings, and in in the community for Latinos or black people or just minority communities, and there's this promise of more jobs and this, and there is more jobs, but they don't go to the people that live in that community and then it ends up like feeling like it's not really serving them do you do you hear what i'm saying or like oh no absolutely and it's it's a real thing that is that has happened in brooklyn that has happened in parts of atlanta that's happened in kansas city Mm -hmm. like all of those things have absolutely happened so i'm not sitting here and saying like i don't like to generalize i try to talk about like specific examples yeah but no you're right i mean i think in kansas city in particular there's also uh, there's an age thing. Mm-hmm. So if you are a black person over the age of really 55, like, come on, like, yeah, you're going to have an entirely different view. Well, not necessarily, but a lot of people do have an entirely different view on this east-west truce divide. Of course. Development taking place east of truce. Who are the parties involved? Who are the developers make sure there's equity and I get that because their parents and themselves in all likelihood you know they were victims of redlining mm-hmm. and bad bad displacement that took place on behalf of Casey Mo, city officials, JC Nichols and other, you know, I would say power players in the metro area. So, I get that. And there's no getting around the history of this city. I mean, you look at school districts, you look at crime rates, you look at um, household income, 
you look at all the the major metrics you would look at to you know say who's thriving and who's not you know all of those things that took place uh prior to civil rights movement were all you know we're still feeling the ramifications of that mm-hmm. in this city today yeah. and so um yeah i get it and i understand why some people are just like very standoffish and suspicious of any kind of developer that's trying to come in and do something on the east side like i get that so what would you say obviously you can't like you know change the behaviors or approach someone has um to situations like that but say you're you're a part of a development that you really think is going to do a lot of good um for the community and then there's people coming in saying like they think it's not going to do a lot of good and they're like no 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 don't do that gentrification this this and that like what would you think is a better i don't know if that's a good question a better approach like mental approach like just being open to it like you know see what happens or would you say like get involved this is how you can get involved i don't know if my question is specific enough i got you perfect (laughs) yeah no like be engaged that's what i tell people all the time people get hyped up and you know if we're being honest people don't even get hyped up enough on you know your federal elections i think everyone's power is in voting that's everyone's power like if you're a citizen in kcmo you need to go vote on those city council elections you need to go vote for the school board you need to go vote for the uh jackson county um executive positions like all of those things that's what controls your property taxes that's what controls where development takes place that's what controls what happens with the schools and accreditation, all of those things. Like, people got to vote. That's first and foremost because a lot of things that happen, it all just comes back to are you paying attention, are you engaged, and are you voting in all of your local elections? Mm-hmm. First and foremost. Second, I would say to engage. Engage with the developer or the leasing agent, the broker, whoever. Try and get a hold of somebody and have a conversation as opposed to, I would say, you know, just throwing heat on social media and Twitter or whatever. Like, that doesn't do anything. No one cares. Like, people can organize and do a lot of great things on social media platforms, but as far as making an impact or, you know, persuading somebody to change their opinion on what they're going to do, Developers aren't paying attention to your Twitter. Developers aren't paying attention to your Facebook or whatever. They don't care. You want to get some impactful change made, try to communicate directly to them or communicate directly to your city council member on why you feel some type of way and tell all the people in your social media group, hey, everyone go talk to whoever. I'm not going to say names, but whoever, you know, whatever district you're from, talk to your city council member, have all your friends talk to them, send them the same message of like, we're upset by this, you go talk to them. They have those conversations. Developers have to, in this city, engage with city council. Nothing gets done without it. So everyone has the power to do a lot more than I I think they realize. It's just most people tend to go about it in a manner that's, I would say, pretty ineffective. I hear you. 
I feel that. That's kind of how I feel when I'm scrolling through Twitter on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> it's wild. And, and as much as I'd love to dive even deeper into that conversation for the sake of time, we're going to get into our speed round yep. and then our final question and wrap it up for today. And we'll definitely have to do a part two. I like, when, I like when I have conversations with uh, intellectual beings who know a lot about things that are you know impactful in a community. It means the conversation can like go super, super deep. Um, not that it's not already super deep talking about your life story. That's kind of the point of the podcast, really, to talk to individuals about their story and their journey and getting to where they are they are now and not over-indexing, over-indexing on business tactics and things of that nature. But it's also good to do that. So um, let's get into our speed round. So the speed round, simply try to answer in a sentence, like a, like a sentence and boom. I would like to say one word, but that makes it a little boring. So answer in a sentence and are you ready? I'm gonna try it. Awesome, awesome. So, what fashion trend? What fashion trend should we bring back? Oh, fashion trend we should bring back. Man, I'm not a I'm not a fashion guy for real. Uh, I'm joking, but at the same time, I'm not. Those uh, those shoes with little roller skates in them that you can heel around on. <laughs> Heelys. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you know that's not a bad answer. That's a pretty good answer. Hey, I think that's quick clean. to get around. It's quick to get around. That's the new, uh, that's the old school bird. Exactly. You know, actually, again, on the last podcast, you talked about in terms of getting on, you know, from where you live now to getting on to the trolley and then the trolley to a bird and the bird and you're at this, you know, at 18th and Vine in like 20 minutes. It's like, you could do that on some Heelys too. You could do that on some Heelys too. What's the, <clears throat> let's see. Okay. Uh, you've, you've just learned they're making a movie about your life. All right. I know you're not 77 yet, but you know. You've just learned they're making a movie about your life, and you get to control the ta- casting. Who is going to play your character? Oh, that's uh, that's probably an easy one. I would say uh, Donald Glover. That, that's a good ask. I like these answers. I thought you was going to say Denzel Washington. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> and then the final question I'm going to ask you is, have you ever had a bad job? If so, what was it? Oh, yeah. My least favorite job ever. Not even close. High school, I was – sorry, this is a long answer. I was a dishwasher – High V working in the commercial kitchen for the buffet line. Mm. So I was a bus boy, take all the stuff off people's tables, and then uh, those buffet trays, man, they they're in there all day, and they just stuff just gets caked on there. Oh yeah, so you had to scrape for hours. Scrape for hours. That sounds trash. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Mine was a I seventy driving. I hated it. Oh, that's job. not bad. Nah, nah, we we'll get into it on another episode. But um, the the final question I want to ask you that I ask every single guest that comes on the show is: It's your last day on Earth. You've lived to be 115 years old. Um, you got great grandkids. You've been able to live a life that you enjoyed and felt like you left a lot of you know impact and a good legacy. But it's your last day on Earth, and your great great grandkids are sitting at your feet, and they ask you, great great granddad, what's one piece of advice on how to give a good how to live a good life? What are you going to say? Don't let other people's problems or uh, I say don't let other people's problems or uh, energy mess with yours. Mm. Because that's one thing I think even after high school, even after college, I still was trying to figure it out probably up until three or four years ago, which I give my wife a lot of credit for in all honesty of just you can control what you can control all this other stuff the outside noise what people think things people are saying you have no control over other people so don't let 
other people affect your energy. Oh, baby. And you said something right there that just made me want to say this. If y'all remember uh, uh, the Drake album, whatever Drake album that Hold On, We're Going Home is on, or I think it's with his face facing the other way as a kid. Anyways, um, remember that part with that Jay Z's uh, future, and he's like, All that other shit is here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah, so, anyways, that's what that reminded me of. Anyways, ladies and gentlemen, you know me, I like to talk. But y'all, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Kalastutza Show with our guy, Charlie, and with your boy, C-I-W-Z-Y, you dig, Sizzy, or you might know me as college. But anyways, go ahead and let the folks know where they can find you on social media, how they can support you, and everything that you're involved in right now. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, man. Uh, LinkedIn, social media, just Charlie Lowe, Crossroads Real Estate Group. I think my Instagram handle is clow9989. I'm not a big social media person for real, but as far as what you can do to help out, I'm very involved in a lot of nonprofit organizations, Urban Ranger Corps, KC, Truce Market Collective, Black Excellence, KC, all great organizations here in town, all doing a lot of great work in the urban core. Uh, Urban Rangers in particular, man, you know, helping out young men from eighth grade through high school, you know, providing them, you know, with tutoring, mentoring, being able to give them life skills and giving them a path to, you know, after high school, you know, you're either going to enter the workforce, go to a four-year college, go to a community college, or go into community service of some sort, being, you know, police, firefighter, military, armed services, whatever. I mean, it's incredible program. They do a lot of great work, and the success rate is truly impressive. So that's all I got. I love it. Hey, well, thank you again. We'll be back with a part two. Leave a five-star review. Damn, I'm a rapper. Um, Share that with a friend because this is the only way we can grow. If you don't share, if you don't leave a review, then you just leaving here, leaving us here in the dust and you listening selfishly. So anyways, we out. Salooski.